I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no belief, no debunking, only slight snark when appropriate. Welcome to Encounter 57, live from Halifax, 2018. Today, we're going to take a look back to a year ago, to Esotericon in Halifax, Nova Scotia. This is the talk I gave there, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for coming. My, my, my talk is, is entitled uh, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, uh, the Past and Future Evolution of UFO Narratives. And uh, before I get into everything, I just want to, uh, I just want to expand on, uh, on, on the introduction a little bit to give some context to what I'm going to be talking about and how I approach these subjects and, and why I feel kind of cool, but also kind of fraudulent when Paul says something like, in the UFO field. Because I, I'm not. I... I, I I, I'm very comfortable being slightly off to the side of the UFO field, looking at it and saying, well, we've seen that before. And that's what today is. We've seen this before. We've seen a lot of it before. So I host a, um, a podcast since August, I think, called The Saucer Life. And what the podcast is, it's um, nicely digestible 20 to 30 minute chunks of UFO history. Um, the narrative interspersed with, with primary sources because I'm a history guy and that's what we do. Here's some documentation, here's what, uh, here's what they said. And it's sort of, it's not meant to be exhaustive, but it's meant to give you a situation where if this is a story you think is interesting, I can point you in the direction of, of learning more about that story. So um, that's, uh, that's me and, and that's what I do. And when, when people, ask me what I, what I do for a living, if I'm feeling really annoying, which a lot of the time, um, I say something like, I tell stories. <laughs> really? What do you do? I teach history. But I tell stories. And um, because that's the way I think, um, it's the way I think people who don't come into a classroom with a burning desire to learn about history respond best not with memorize this list of treaties or tell me about each of these individuals. If those things are worked into a story, it tends to be absorbed much better. And, and whether the students read the story or hear the story or learn how to construct a story from historical evidence, data, documents, diaries, things like that, we are in some way as, as people um, responsive to stories. And, and we've always told stories and listened to stories and loved stories, and I'm not going to say something horrible like, really, isn't everything a story? Because it's not. Some things are a chair or a glass of water or a window or something. But stories are, uh, stories are important. And what category we put different stories in depends on, on what goes into it. So a story based on a combination of, of documentation and eyewitness statements and statistics and decrees and, and things from the past it's a history story, a story based on accounts of what's going on right now in any number of fields. It's news. A story based on claims of otherworldly revelation. It's religion. 
story based on a combination of documents like eyewitness statements, statistics, decrees, and other evidence from the past, and accounts of what's going on right now, and claims of otherworldly revelation, it's a flying saucer story. You take all those things together and you look at UFO stories and flying saucer accounts, and, and what you get is every type of story that humanity has ever told sort of aggregated in, into one weird thing. And we find little aspects of it in various ways. So that's what I do on my podcast. I talk about, uh, I talk about those stories. And basically what this talk is going to be, it's going to be like a live version of the podcast. I, I figured the, to, to save myself you know, heartache and trying to do something completely new. It's like, well, I'll just go with what dozens of people have told me they don't hate too much and, uh, and, and do it this way. So as I've been working on this podcast for, for almost a year, what I've found is that, uh, is that there's a lot of repetition out there in the UFO field and in the UFO community. Not in the sense that many people have encounters and every day more people have encounters. And, and not in the sense that lots of people see strange things in the sky. But rather in the sense that there are stories and narratives that are, that are very specific, like beat-by-beat beat stories of things that happen that get reused. And sometimes retold, stripped of their original context. And it's interesting to see how these stories change over time and how they drift in and out of, of not just the consciousness of the UFO community, but also, uh, in some ways, the, the public consciousness. So this morning, I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at the way that these flying saucer stories have developed over the past few decades, focusing on a few main themes or motifs or tropes or whatever you want to call them. A quick warning. A caveat. Um, inclusion or exclusion from my discussion today is not in any way indicative of what I think about a particular story. Because I don't mention a certain thing doesn't mean I hate it. Because I do mention it doesn't mean I believe it. I think what you'll find is that it's pretty clear of what I do or don't believe as we, uh, as we go through this. So mostly things have been stripped down um, for purposes of time as well as clarity. This talk went through draft after draft after draft in an attempt to make it, uh, to make it clear, a Sisyphus-like effort to make it sort of linear in some way. So if it doesn't make sense, I want you to know that I really tried. I, I really tried. This, this, wasn't a, this wasn't a first draft in the airport on the way here, or this was fiddling with it as I drank coffee this morning before we came over. It's like... I'm out of time. I, I'm just going to have to do this. So the reduce, reuse, and recycle language came to me for a few reasons. Because what do we do with stories? We recycle. And why do we recycle? Partially because the same things happen over and over again. And we find new ways to tell old stories. But um, the idea of reducing, recycling and reducing and reusing, I want, I want to talk about just as we begin, what I mean by that. So reducing. Some stories, some narratives get compressed. In retelling and retelling and retelling and recounting, details get left out. Context gets, uh, gets sloughed off. They get more bland. They get more perfunctory. They get more taken, uh, taken for granted. Uh, they get less enthralling. And yeah, that's subjective. Less interesting, less enthralling, less detailed. That's subjective. And if you were here yesterday... 
The impression you might have gotten from talks such as Walter's and such as Greg's is that some of these things are way more subjective than some people would like you to believe. Um, many of these things very much depend on the perspective of the person telling the story, telling their story. And I think Ryan's talk dealt with that as well. Um, the, the kids on either side of the fence, one group who saw something and one group who didn't. You know, that's, that's just all of it right there, isn't it? You know, just the, the weirdness and the, the personal nature of these things. So, reuse. Sometimes there are more or less straight-up repetitions of stories over and over and over again. And recycling. Sometimes subsequent tellers take bits from column A and bits from column B and cobble things together into a new story that would be unrecognizable to the people who initially, initially, initially um, concocted part of that story or, or experienced part of that story or retold part of that story. We take little bits and we, we hammer them into a new shape for what we want to do. So, for the next uh, less than an hour, because lunch, uh, we're going to be examining um, basically two sort of themes. One is a supposed event that, uh, that tied into the, the ongoing stories of, of collusion or collaboration or cooperation between the United States government and an alien nation, and, uh, and, and the, the way this story develops. And the other is more broad, and it's going to be about the use of, um, the use of UFO stories and UFO encounter tales and UFO experiences as a vehicle for promoting social and political change, and that pattern that's developed over time and how that has, uh, has shifted. So we're going to start with one of the most enduring stories of ufology. And what's great about it, what's great about the story, it's great, believe me, is that we can point to something and say, that's pretty much where this started. We can point to something that is a printed document that has somebody's name attached to it and say, this is where this thing began. And there's not, it's, it's rare that we can absolutely do that, right? It's rare that we can, rare that we can find one starting point. But um, we're going to go back to the beginning. And the beginning means background information and context. Exciting, sexy context. Everybody loves context. In 1945, 45, but didn't UFOs start in 1947? Whatever. 1945, literary scholar and psychical researcher Mead Lane established a newsletter called The Round Robin. And the purpose of the round robin was to serve as a means of communication between researchers into strange, esoteric, psychic, and parapsychological phenomenon topics. And one of the members of this group um, was, uh, or an associate of this group, was, uh, was a man named Mark Probert, who was a, uh, was a, a channeler, a psychic channeler. And Psychic and spiritualist channeling and, and, and getting messages from beyond had been part of, of Western spiritual traditions for a very long time. It was huge in the late 19th century. I mean, this was a, a solidly sort of middle-class, mainstream topic and phenomenon. And Mark Probert began to receive messages from creatures he called Ethereans. They're not quite aliens, but if you want to think of them as sort of proto-aliens in... That sense, it would work. And so 
The Round Robin sort of evolved into an organization called the Borderland Sciences Research Associates, and they were deeply invested in discussing, sort of, again, off to the side a little bit, this new phenomenon of flying saucers in 1947, Richard Shaver's hollow Earth stories um, around the same time period, uh, critiquing, uh, critiquing UFO experiencers and contactees. And so it's, it's an important organization. And one associate of this organization was a psychical researcher named Mead Lane. Uh, yeah, not Mead Lane. Um, he wrote to Mead Lane, a guy named Gerald Light. And in 1954, Gerald wrote a letter to Mead Lane for um, eventually publishing in the Round Robin. In April of 1954, there had been a report of UFOs supposedly landing at Muroc Airfield. Now, at the time, still Edwards Air Base, but it was people still called it Muroc Field. I think the name changed in 1949 or something like that. UFOs landed. Light writes to Lane shortly after the event with some shocking news. And um, I'm, I'm going to, there's this letter, and this is some good stuff, and it's the letter that's on the screen. My dear friend, I've just returned from Muroc. The report is true, devastatingly true. I made the journey in the company of Franklin Allen of the Hearst Papers and Edwin Norse of the Brookings Institute and Bishop McIntyre of Los Angeles. When we were allowed to enter the restricted area after about six hours in which we were checked on every possible item, event, incident, and aspect of our personal and public lives, I had the distinct feeling that the world was, had come to an end with fantastic realism, for I've never seen so many human beings in a state of complete collapse and confusion as they realized that their own world had indeed ended with such finality as to beggar description. The reality of the other plain arrow forms is now and forever removed from the realms of speculation and has made a rather painful part of the consciousness of every responsible scientific and political group. During my two days visit, I saw five separate and distinct types of aircraft being studied and handled by our Air Force officials with the assistance and permission of the Ethereans. I have no words to express my reactions. It has finally happened. It is now a matter of history. President Eisenhower, as you may already know, was spirited over to Muroc one night during his visit to Palm Springs, and it is my conviction that he will ignore the terrific conflict between the various authorities and go directly to the people via radio and television. If the impasse continues much longer, from what I could gather, an official statement to the country is being prepared for delivery about the middle of May. I will leave, you, leave it to your own excellent powers of deduction to construct a fitting picture of the mental and emotional pandemonium that is now shattering the consciousness of hundreds of our scientific authorities and all the pundits of the various specialized knowledges that make up our current physics. In some instance, I could not stifle a wave of pity that arose in my own being as I watched the pathetic bewilderment of brilliant brains struggling to make some sort of rational explanation which would enable them to retain their familiar theories and concepts. And I thank my own destiny for having long ago pushed me into the metaphysical woods and compelled me to find my way out, to watch strong minds cringe before totally irreconcilable aspects of science is not a pleasant thing. I shall never forget those 48 hours at Muroc. How many of you have heard of this letter before? Just Walter? Wow. So you, it's, yeah, it's, 
Yeah, um, yeah, we'll talk about some of the places it shows up, but uh, it was in the round robin, but not for a few years, and it was, um, it was a little bit redacted. Uh, the names of Bishop McIntyre, at Light's request, the names of the guy from the newspaper and Bishop McIntyre and the guy from the Brookings Institution were all edited out. So this, an, an edited extract of this letter appears in the round robin. And interestingly, the story kind of disappears for a while. But after a while, it begins to surface. So did Eisenhower meet with aliens in California in 1954? Suspect at best. Light was, in many other ways, and this is too long to get into, Light was not an entirely responsible reporter in other aspects of things he had written. Um, so there's some suspicion about, about Light, Light's... Uh, Light's um, experiences. What we do know, and, and this is subject of much speculation, is that at that point in time, there was some mystery about exactly where President Eisenhower was. He was not where he was supposed to be. There was a spurious report that he had died. That was retracted, and it was amended to emergency dental surgery. But there are some missing, there's a missing time in, uh, in, in his itinerary during that time. I think it's Sometimes presidents have meetings that don't go on the record. That doesn't meet, pre, mean President Eisenhower met with Ethereans at Edwards Air Force Base. That's the thing. You know, just because something weird happened doesn't mean this happened. And, and that's, that's an important distinction to make. The thing is, it disappears for a while, right? Then it doesn't. If you throw, what, did I, what phrase did I use? Um, did President Eisenhower meet with aliens in 1954? If you throw that in your Google machine... It's about 850,000 results. This comes back. Now, before we go any further, just to recap, there's a basic story here. February of 54, Eisenhower and Gerald Light, a bishop and some other guys, take part in or witness a meeting with Ethereans. Aren't quite space aliens, aren't quite not space aliens. He describes a scene of Air Force personnel personnel working with the Ethereans, and everybody's kind of panicky because their whole world's been turned upside down. That's the basic story that's encapsulated in this letter. Keep that in your mind, because we're going to see the bones of this story reappear decades later, and it becomes a framework on which people just sort of throw stuff Jackson Pollock-like at this, this blank canvas of this sort of basic account of this meeting. So, we're going, to, uh, we're going to do some Micah Hanks time traveling here. Flash forward. During the 1980s, three things emerge in the flying saucer subculture that would shape it for decades to come, right up until the present. Each of these things could be a whole talk in themselves, and, and, and so I'm just going to sort of summarize them. But the first is the, the appearance, revelation of a collection of documents discussing a group called MJ-12. If you were here for, um, for Stan's talk last night, you heard about Majestic 12, MJ-12, this think tank control group of scientists and military and intelligence personnel who were supposedly overseeing the flying saucer mystery, managing American contact with ET. The second thing that emerges and becomes prominent in the 1980s, emerges earlier, becomes prominent in the 80s, is the abduction phenomenon which sort of gives rise to a popular image of alien contact that's often violent and invasive. And the third 
was a dis and you heard about this yesterday too a bit, a disinformation campaign waged against a New Mexico businessman named Paul Benowitz, who, um, according to those who've investigated, like Greg Bishop in Project Beta, uh, Benowitz had seen what he thought to be possible UFOs, more likely some sort of secret Air Force experimentation, equipment, weapons, technology. Um, the agents, according to the, the research done, agents of the Air Force Awful Office of Special Intelligence, can't talk. Air Force Office of Special Investigations, but not Walter, um, <laughs> um, embarked on a mission to lead Benowitz away from, from what he really saw toward an explanation that was more suited to their purposes. And one of the people involved with this was a man named Bill Moore, a UFO investigator who, who had gotten gotten wrapped up in this. That's a very basic and simplified version. Go read Project Beta. You can buy it from Greg today, I think, right? Yes. They can buy it from Greg today. He'll even sign it for free. In the 1992 interview, in, uh, I think, in Greg's, uh, with Greg in Excluded Middle Magazine, Moore outlined the elements of the disinformation campaign uh, or the disinformation that Benowitz had encountered. It included, quote, the whole story of government alien involvement, treaties with aliens, underground bases, a plot to take over the planet, implants, two different races of alliances, one, aliens, one hostile, one friendly, etc. all the product of, quote, counterintelligence people for the purpose of discrediting Benowitz, end quote. And that is where we come up with this guy. Who's that guy? Anybody know? John Lear. Son of William Lear, um, who invented the Lear jet. John Lear emerges in, um, in the late 1980s with a statement in 1987, initially uploaded to, um, I think, to the Paranet bulletin board system, sort of a proto-internet uh, proto sort of thing. And in this, he, re he reveals what he says is the truth about uh, MJ-12, and that this is far more frightening than anybody had, uh, had known. For example, quote, during the period of 1969 to 1971, MJ-12, representing the US government, made a deal with these creatures. The deal was that in exchange for technology that they would provide to us, we agreed to ignore the abductions that were going on and suppress information on cattle mutilations. The aliens assured MJ-12 that the abductions were merely the ongoing monitoring of developing civilizations. In fact, Lear said, the purposes of the abductions turned out to be the insertion of a three millimeter implant inside the nasal cavity for monitoring, tracking, and control of the abductee, implementation of a post-hypnotic suggestion to carry out a specific activity during a specific time period within the next two to five years, I read that right, I read this document for the first time right at the edge of that two to five year window. Like it's like, oh my gosh, we're right in the, it could still happen. So as far as origin stories go, Ryan saw something. I read John Lear saying the aliens are gonna switch on all the abductees as a fifth column to conquer us. That was my sort of introduction to the, to the field. And the, the termination of some people so they could function as living sources for biological substances. Along with Lear, we have this guy. Who's that guy? Bill. Bill. Uncle, Uncle, Uncle Bill Coo. Oh, man. That's, somehow he's even scarier when you call him Uncle Bill. Um, I, Greg saw this picture of um, conspiracy researcher um, 
militia leader, UFO gadfly, uh, Milton William Cooper last night, and he said, I think that's the friendliest I've ever seen a picture of Bill Cooper look. Um, and I purposely got this one because he, he looks he looks like everybody's crazy uncle right there. So, yeah. So Bill Cooper. Um, Bill Cooper emerges onto the UFO scene not long after John Lear does and presents himself as a whistleblower. We're going to hear that term a lot whistleblowers. Um, he says that he had seen secret information when he was in the Navy in the 1970s that verified basically everything John Lear said. So this is what Cooper does. We're talking about recycling stories, reusing stories, repurposing stories. John Lear tells a story that itself had been you know, the foundation of which had been part of the, the Benowitz uh, disinformation campaign. Lear tells this story. Cooper one-ups him by saying, oh, this story's true, and I know it's true because I saw stuff 20 years ago. So not only am I verifying Lear's statement, I'm able to present myself as sort of getting the jump on Lear. Because, well, I saw it first. I just didn't tell you because I thought it was classified. But now that it's out in the open, I can reveal, oh, I saw that way before anybody else. This is a pattern we're going to see. This is how these stories develop. You change them just enough to provide information that is different enough that you can present yourself as more of an authority than the last person who told the story. Why? Money. That, I mean, that's one thing. That's, the cynic in me says, if I change the story enough to write a different book, I can sell my book and people have to buy this one too. And I'll get invited to conferences because I'm the one who was there first. Until somebody shows up and says, well, I saw it five years before him. And it goes on and on and on and on. So, he corroborated Lear's stories about a secret deal between MJ-12 and the aliens, claiming that he'd seen this information in the classified documents. In his earliest statements, he reported that the meeting took place at a secret meeting at Holloman Air Force Base in the late 1960s. But, and here we go. That makes it sound dramatic, but here we go. If you go to YouTube, you can find some of these videos. And, and I'm paranoid about using video in presentations, so I didn't do it. But you, get, you can go find this stuff. At a certain point, Cooper switches from talking about a secret deal being, being made in the 60s at Holloman to a secret treaty between the American government and the aliens in 1954 at Edwards Air Force Base. Cooper marries the emerging but quickly established conspiracy theory that there's a secret treaty. And he, he somewhere, somebody slips him this letter that Gerald White wrote to Mead Lane, and boom, you have got a ready-made canvas on which to graft this secret treaty story. It's pretty, it's pretty clever. He reframes Lane's letter as evidence not just of Eisenhower's meeting with aliens, but evidence that his information that he got in the 1970s was accurate. And he's got an angle that nobody else does. So back to Light's letter. Think about that. Did we hear about a treaty? Did we hear about an agreement? We heard there was cooperation and people working together. We can work with lots of people without a treaty, without a formal treaty. 
You can infer that some formal agreement might have taken place, but that's not what the letter says. And you can get a lot of, in a lot of trouble historically inferring things that aren't there, especially when you go around to conferences and present it as absolute fact, not speculation. Specul as, as Walter has said, flagging the speculation is fine for the benefit of the people listening or reading. You, you sort of have to do that so they don't call you out for unfounded speculation. You can say, I'm speculating, and it might not be founded in your opinion, but this is what I've come up with. Cooper doesn't do that. Cooper says, I saw absolute proof. What well, can you show us? No. No. It was classified. Well, you remember it word for word 20 years later? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And you know what else I remember? You know that Stanton Friedman guy who says I'm a liar? You know that Bruce McAbee guy who says I'm a liar? You know this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy who says I'm a liar? I saw their names on a list of paid government disinformation agents who are lying about the UFO phenomenon. It was at that point people stopped listening to Bill Cooper in, in a lot of ways. And he started saying that he'd been duped by everybody and, and, and so on and so forth. So Cooper takes this letter out of, out, of its, uh, out of its context. And this was then picked up with, picked up on, after Cooper has denounced his own story as him being the victim of disinformation, I checked, it's the only time he ever admitted to being wrong about anything. He says, I was duped. What I saw were not, was not proof of an alien invasion. It was proof that the government was going to use a story about alien invasion to usher in the New World Order. So if last night one of the guys over on this side of the room asked a question about Project Bluebeam, anybody familiar with Project Bluebeam? It's a, a story, um, a, a journalist, French-Canadian journalist, uh, Serge Monast, back in the, the mid-1990s, um, gave some talks and wrote some articles about Project Bluebeam, which was going to use holographic technology to simulate all sorts of things for sort of public control. Everything from alien invasions to the second coming of Christ would be holographically projected as a means of duping the population into subservience to a new world order. Um, so if you wondered what Blue Beam was, that's, uh, that's the gist of it. So Cooper denounces all this stuff. And then a few years later, a guy named Phil Schneider shows up. And Phil Schneider claimed to be, I just found the goofiest picture I could, but um, Phil Schneider wasn't around for too long. Uh, a few years in the mid-90s, he claimed to have been a worker in the underground base at Dulce, New Mexico, which was the joint base that was established as part of the treaty between the aliens and the, the humans. And he, he was a witness to the, the, the firefight that took place between the aliens and the humans, and so on and so forth. And in a 1995 talk, Schneider reveals that because he was at this top-secret base, he has the following devastating information for you. Quote, Back in 1954, under the Eisenhower administration, the federal government decided to circumvent the Constitution of the United States and form a treaty with alien entities. It was called the 1954 Granada Treaty, which basically made the agreement that the aliens involved could take a few cows and test their implanting techniques on a few human beings, but that they had to give details about the people involved. Slowly, the aliens altered the bargain until they decided they wouldn't abide by it at all. We have taken John Lear's presentation of the Benowitz information. You've appropriated Cooper's 1954 treaty. 
And how do you twist it? How do you recycle it to make it your own? You give it a name. This was the Granada Treaty. I have never for the life of me figured out why it was called the Granada Treaty. Nowhere near Granada, I don't think. Unless there's some like burg in California called Granada near the base. And I don't know, maybe. So it has a name now. And what's fascinating, this is just from a, a, a sort of, I don't, know if they, I don't know if they do this in Canada. They probably do. But you ever play that game Telephone when you were a kid? You all line up and somebody whispers something in the first person's ear and you repeat it person to person. And it's always funny how it's completely different when it gets out the last person who heard it as you, you misinterpret these things. So if you Google Granada Treaty, what you're going to find is a spelling Grayada Treaty. And if you Google Grayada Treaty, you get more hits than Granada. The misspelling gets more hits than the real thing. Why? Because the only evidence of this, pretty much, is that YouTube clip with Phil Schneider. And it's a little garbled, and it sounds like it could be Granada or Grayada. But Grayada ain't a word. Or a place. It's weird. It's just weird how these things, uh, how these things go. It gets, this treaty gets two names. And it, it continues to be promulgated and debated. Uh, Self-styled expert on exopolitics, Michael Sala wrote on the 50th anniversary of the alleged event in 2004 that not only were the events true, but that he had found new witnesses. There was a guy named Charles Suggs who claimed his dad was at the, at the meeting when he was in the Navy. Uh, there's Don Phillips who claimed to have, <laughs> here we go, who claimed to have seen documents while he was in the Navy that verify the story as well, and I'm pretty sure he saw the same documents Bill Cooper did. They just must leave them laying around. Yeah. It's like, we, we let anybody look at these things. And you know what? Putting on my, my paranoid hat, which I put on a lot these days, put on my paranoid hat, you've got multiple people claiming that they saw documents when they were in the Navy that said a certain thing. What if they did? What if Cooper wasn't wrong about this being a massive disinformation campaign? I don't know if that's true or not, but it's fun to think about. It's fun to think about the bizarre possibility that Bill Cooper was telling the truth about something. It's the most bizarre science fiction I can imagine. Grant Cameron has woven the, uh, the 1954 Eisenhower meeting into, um, into his wider tapestry of President Eisenhower's UFO adventures, which is a comic book that somebody needs to make, President Eisenhower's UFO adventures. It's just Ike running around to 15 different air bases every month meeting with aliens. Um, in detailing some of the stories, Cameron sort of hedges his bets on whether or not they're true. And, and this, is, this is a masterful piece of, 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 of sort of self-protection rhetoric. Quote, the fact that there is a story about Eisenhower interacting with UFOs or an alien does not make the story true. Most of the Eisenhower contact stories seem a little far-fetched and may well be creations of the minds that first told them. Listen to this. This, however, does not change the fact that Eisenhower trumps all other presidents in such possibly made-up stories. Where's the significance? Eisenhower may have had more stories made up about him than any other president. So what? How does that prove anything other than, like I said, this is a useful framework for imposing whatever your view of what went on is. It's interesting. So, 
What are these stories? In addition to the 1954 meeting, we have Eisenhower seeing a UFO in 1952 while on, uh, while on the, I think it was the USS Roosevelt, a, a command ship when he was supreme commander in Europe. Um, whoops, ah! We have um, a report of a possible meeting, no date given, between Eisenhower and aliens. Um, we have a 1953 encounter revealed by a guy named Gordon Duff, who runs a conspiracy... It, he doesn't say it's a conspiracy website. He says it's a news website, but it's called Veterans Today, and it's a conspiracy website. And um, he says he has a number of former intelligence agents on his staff, which I don't doubt, probably. But um, Duff talked about the meeting on an episode of Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie back in 2012. He claimed, what do you think he claimed? Where do you think he got his secret information? He saw secret documents when he was in the service. Yeah. Um, the document, there were secret MJ-12 papers, MJ-12 papers that nobody else had seen, right? Um, and what are the odds? Uh, it covered the period from 1947 to 1977, and they indicated that, uh, he, quote, we had two distinct treaties. There have been more since. One in 1947 was with President Truman. One in 1953, 53, with President Eisenhower. Um, it was an agreement, a coercive agreement between the USA on behalf of a hostile alien power that wished to be able to kidnap a number of citizens from the United States, which means, of course, that they had agreements with other nations as well. They took 230,000 people and butchered them. It just gets, this is the reduction part. They're implanting a spherical device to create a mind-controlled army to help them to, by the time we get to 2000, uh, 2012, oh, they butchered them. It gets dumber as we go. It gets dumber, and like Tim was saying yesterday, it gets dumber and it gets darker. It gets darker, as if it was more dark than the mind-controlled army of alien slaves. No, it's just a quarter million people taken and, and, and killed. And killed. Reuse, rinse, repeat. It's the same stories, but with the date one year off. He got the date wrong. In 2012, it's on the internet and everything. But he gets the date wrong. So what does Grant Cameron do? He says, Eisenhower signed two separate treaties, one in 1953 because Gordon Duff says so, and one in 1954 because everybody says so. I'm getting angry, actually, the more I tell this. Just stick to a story. But you can't, because you have to make it yours. You have to make it your conspiracy theory, and you have to be the expert, the guy who saw it on the documents in the Navy, or whatever. And it's still here. This is, a, this is a petition to President Trump to abrogate the treaty, end the Grayada Treaty, the misspelled Grayada Treaty, and end pedo, the pedo-criminal matrix on Earth. What they've done by 2017 is taken the 1954 treaty story and merged it with Pizzagate. It never ends. It always goes. It's like, it's like a snowball rolling downhill, picking up whatever is in its path, and then, <laughs> then crushing us. A final note on the Eisenhower story. Eisenhower's great-granddaughter, Laura Eisenhower, <laughs> needs help. Uh, but <laughs> his, his great-granddaughter, Laura Eisenhower, what did I, I wrote here? 
has made quite an impression on the UFO world with her stories. In a, 19, in a 2014 statement in Italy to a, a hearing on UFO disclosure uh, to some Italian officials, Laura Eisenhower related the tale of the Granada Treaty. She got the name right. A treaty the U.S. signed with an alien nation in 1934. How does she know? Whistleblowers. What are their names? Can't tell you. It's dangerous to tell you who the whistleblowers are. Why go to an earlier date? Because it makes great-granddad not the president who signed us up with an alien treaty. It's a way to, and it, 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 it ties into Nazi UFO stuff, the 1934 date does. She ties it into that. And it, it lets Eisenhower off the hook. Eisenhower was the, guy, was the hero who inherited a problem that Roosevelt started. So you're able to get partisan politics in there as well. Editorializing a bit, though, I have to say that uh, we can see from her writings that Laura Eisenhower may, in fact, be one of those people who believes any story she's ever been told by anybody. Um, I had to, this isn't necessarily UFO-related, but I had to pull this, this quotation from her, her testimony. I'm going to try to do this with a straight face. I'm sorry, Laura, but... Lordy. Okay, quote... We cannot deny weather modification and the spraying of our skies. Really, all you need to do is look up in the sky to know that something is very wrong. We are also dealing with the Fukushima disaster, geoengineering, genetically modified foods, false flags in the news, media control, mind control, possible fake alien invasion scenarios, possible fake ascended master scenarios, and the threatening controlled collapse of the economy, martial law, FEMA camps, and the chipping of civilians. That's pretty much all of it. That's every significant conspiracy trend of the last 30 years in one paragraph. And it's all true. It's all true. The 1954 Eisenhower meeting is a great example of how UFO culture used and reused a story altering details and timelines to suit various individuals' purposes over the decades. Those purposes, being cynical, I acknowledge that, those purposes are all often gaining notoriety of differentiating themselves from other people who are telling nearly identical stories. But I saw it first, or I saw the document that wasn't disinformation. You fell for the 1953 treaty, but I know it was a 1954 treaty. You know, the 1953 treaty, I saw that document too. And I know from a fact from when I was in the Navy that that was pure disinformation. I have secret knowledge that makes me better than you, that makes my book better than your book, that makes my appearance at a conference better than your appearance at a conference. It's a very competitive capitalistic industry, uh, ufology, which um, makes it fun. In a way. So, next, next aspect. Um, more of a, a trend or a mood. The use, of, the use of UFOs, flying saucers, extraterrestrial phenomenon, um, using that as a vehicle to promote social and, and political change. And um, a lot of this began with a group called the Contactees. 
a specific group of contactees beginning in the 1950s who claimed to have had either psychic channeled or physical in-person um, contact and encounters with human-like beings from other planets, usually planets in our own in our own solar system. I've done a lot of contact these stories in the saucer life because I like it, and, and people haven't complained. I've gotten a lot of emails asking me if I've heard of this or that contactee and can I do a show on them, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I got to sort of parcel out the contactees. The, the original idea for the show was contactee of the week, but even I couldn't sustain that idea for more than about 15 minutes before losing my mind. So a lot of times there are warnings that the Earth is in danger. There are warnings that that um, humanity is going to destroy itself with nuclear weapons. Uh, Ryan talked about uh, the, um, the, the, the Carl Jung idea that, uh, that flying saucers emerge in the, in the, at the tail end of World War II as a, a, a sort of manifestation of, of humanity's anxiety about, uh, about the nuclear age. What I've found, though, in the case of many contactees, is that their fears about warfare and their fears about humanity's um, danger to itself predated flying saucers. And the, the sort of godfather of the contactees is George Adamski. And he's, anybody know who he's sitting with? Long John Neville, um, the original Art Bell, the original overnight radio host who delved into paranormal topics. Anybody who was anybody in the 50s in the UFO field was on Long John's show. And you can go on to archive.org, and there are a whole lot of Long John Neville shows that are out there. And if you can deal with the incredibly poor audio quality of them, there's some, uh, there's some real gems there. George Adamski first comes to prominence locally in California, not because, of his, um, not because of his flying saucer photographs or flying saucer stories, but because he ran an organization called the Royal Order of Tibet back in the 1920s and 1930s that was a, a sort of faux Eastern mysticism kind of operation that, according to author Douglas Curran, had a license to make sacramental wine and sell sacramental wine or purchase it or possess it during Prohibition. Um, so there may have been some bootlegging involved uh, to a certain degree. And Adamski, during the 1930s, wrote a number of pamphlets that, uh, that, would, that would survive, including ones like The Kingdom of Heaven on Earth and my best title ever, Satan, Man of the Hour. And, and <laughs> in these, he talks about um, the fact that in 1938, 1939, the world seemed to be headed toward cataclysm and disaster and that humanity needed to embrace universal brotherhood and love and turn away from violence before we destroy ourselves. This is before nuclear weapons. This is before the atomic threat. The ideas were there. What Adamski is able to do is produce photographs of flying saucers, and I will leave it that vague, produce photos of flying saucers, either by taking pictures of flying saucers or by you know, gussying up a hubcap and dangling it from fishing line and taking a picture of it. But he incorporates these messages of universal peace and harmony and, and, and the idea that war will destroy humanity, especially nuclear war, now that that's a threat and that the, the space brothers are, are worried about us doing this. And he also delved into other issues. And this is what, what Jung, when he talks about the, uh, the, it was a product of anxiety, 
Um, what he overlooks is that the anxiety, or whatever, the concern that Adamski expressed was not only about issues of war and peace. There's issues of economic equality. There's issues of race relations in the United States. There's a whole gamut of things that Adamski talks about, both in the 1930s, especially the economic inequality issues in the 1930s during the Great Depression, that vanished by the 1950s for the most part when he sounds like a communist. So um, there's ideas there that predate the saucers. There's a using of the story as a means to get out a message of of political or social change. And there were others as well. George Van Tassel wrote a, a short book called I Rode, was it? I Rode, ah, I, I want to get it right because it's a weird title. I Rode a Flying Saucer. I Rode a Flying Saucer. Not I Rode in a Flying Saucer. I Rode a Flying Saucer. He's in a chair bolted to the top as it, as it goes through the sky. Van Tassel received channeled messages from a number of beings um, who were commanded by Ashtar, who looks like, um, like one of the elves in the Lord of the Rings movies here. It, it's Elrond, you know, um, but... Uh, but they have, they have messages, and, and Van Tassel began his book by saying, quote, Today man builds the means to destroy. Realize that you and your loved ones are at present victims of continual destructive influences. Listen to that inner voice that will cause you to recognize truth when it appears. He um, receives 51 transmissions from Ashtar, Hetan, Lutbun, Portia, Apparently from the Merchant of Venice, she shows up. Um, spelled just like Portia in the Merchant of Venice. And um, just one message um, sort of sums up a lot of them from Ashtar. When they explode the hydrogen atom, they shall extinguish life on this planet. They are tinkering with a formula they do not comprehend. They are destroying a life-giving element of the creative intelligence. Our message to you is this. You shall advance to your government all information we have transmitted to you. You shall request that your government shall immediately contact all other Earth nations, regardless of political feelings. Many of your physicists with an inner perception development have refused to have anything to do with the explosion of the hydrogen atom. And it goes on for pages about how hydrogen as the most abundant element in the universe is the foundation of all life. And the destruction of the hydrogen atom will cause will cause the ex ex extinguishment of life, not only on Earth, but potentially beyond Earth. So Ashtar, who's commanding a fleet that surrounds Earth to protect Earth from bad guys and from itself, is saying, look, we're warning you, don't do this. Um, Van Tassel closes his book by saying, the saucer-bearing beings are here to stay, to direct man back upon the path. Greet the saucer beings with thoughts of love and receive them as friends, not with jets and guns and fear. So already, from Adamski to Van Tassel, we have the Space Brothers are here to give us some information about how to live in love and understanding with each other and to graduate to a higher level of consciousness. Van Tassel takes that basic idea and expands it, right? He expands it, he recycles it, he reforms it to be something a little bit different and a little more powerful and a little more threatening almost. 
The Space Brothers are here, they have a message for us, and they've got a giant freaking fleet, and they can destroy us if they want, but they say they're not going to because they want to help us, but guys, we should really listen to these folks. And it's that tension between are they here to help us or are they here to protect us from ourselves by any means necessary that continues in this field because Ashtar, because he's channeled, I'm being cynical. Anybody can say they're channeling Ashtar. I can say I'm channeling Ashtar. I won't because what kind of life is that? But I could say that I'm channeling Ashtar. And other people will channel Ashtar. And, and probably the most, uh, the most significant um, to channel Ashtar after Van Tassel is this woman, um, this woman named Tuella. She called herself Tuella. And uh, her, her real name was, was Thelma B. Terrell. But uh, she called herself Tuella, which is... I love her. She's, she's just... <laughs> UFO grandma. You know, she, she's just... <laughs> It's like, she looks kind of like my grandma. It, it, it's, it's very, it, it, it's so sweet. She develops this whole cast of characters. There's Ashtar, there's Hatan. They all get personalities. She describes them all. And she's in love with Ashtar. There's a whole book called Ashtar, A Tribute, where she channels these sort of loving recommendations of Ashtar's awesomeness from beings from around the universe. And um, it... Uh, she says, I, I, I love this. Um, I love this. Oh, Ashtar is, quote, a beloved Christian commander and a very beautiful being. A very beautiful being. He is highly evolved in the upper worlds, very influential, and has a great benefactoring influence upon those he leads. In the alliance of the Space Confederation, Commander Ashtar is the highest in authority for our hemisphere. He is also the commander of the starship on which our beloved Lord and great commander Jesus spends so much of his time. He has the authority to clear any channel and interrupt and take over any communication from any source at any time upon our planet. Yet he is gentle, loving, devout, and totally inspiring as a great leader. And it's followed by all the other space people saying how awesome Ashtar is. And what emerges in Tuella's stuff is not so much a political and social message of equality and peace, but I, I, I mentioned this on, uh, on the Project Archive podcast, and it would great, make a great t-shirt, people need to get right with Ashtar <laughs> before it's too late. It shifts into that mood. And so when you are right with Ashtar and their beloved leader, Lord Jesus Sananda, you are at peace with all beings throughout the universe. And you know what? A time is coming, Tuella said, that Ashtar and Jesus aren't going to wait anymore. And they're going to separate out those who have gotten right with Ashtar from those who haven't. And the earth will continue on its path to destruction, but those who believe will be swept up to the spaceships and be safe. It's the, hallelujah, it's the UFO rapture. And when does this emerge? In the wake of Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, in the wake of a pre-tribulation rapture theology sweeping evangelical Christianity in the United States, it's recycling. And now we're recycling things that aren't even flying saucer things. We're able to take this idea of not wanting to, to use a phrase from a book a few years, decades later, not wanting to be left behind. 
and incorporating that into a long story, taking the bits of the story that work for what you want to do and making something new out of it. I'll let that sink in. Anybody can channel any of these folks. What happens when the person channeling these folks is absolutely horrible? That's what we got in the early 1990s with the Phoenix Liberator. There was the, the ownership question, the creation question of who was channeling what and who owned what is, that's a very boring talk in itself. But 300 newsletters and books published by the Phoenix Distribution Company in which Hatan and, um, and Sananda and others were channeled. And it was, it was like evil Star Trek mirror universe space command, the Ashtar space command. It was like, the, it was like imagine Ashtar with this evil Spock goatee. That's what it was. Because you would have Hatan and these guys being verbally abusive to the channels. It's bizarre saying things like, well, I'm going to stop channeling now since you're too weak to comprehend what I'm talking about. Come back when you can cope. We picked up the channeling session later after I had recovered. You know, it's like, you're being mean. And Ashtar was never mean. He was full of love and light. But this stuff isn't channeled. It's, it's transmitted by radio waves. So they sort of take the new aginess out of it. They keep the aliens. But they make the channeling technological rather than spiritual. And then they tell interesting stories. Like about the evil satanic origins of Christmas. Satan Claus is coming to town. You've got Van Tassel and Tuella's aliens channeling things that could have been written by John Lear and Bill Cooper. Hatan identifies the alien camp as, quote, the group of small gray beings that are in total infiltration within your government. They've been very clever, as is their trait, for they have the big boy leader himself, Satan, at the helm. And between your military, government, and scientific community mingled with their misdirected lies and false information, you are in serious, serious trouble. Now, Satan doesn't just have the aliens on his side. Satan has the Illuminati on his side. And, and what's in a piece of delicious irony for people who, who are big sort of devotees of, of Bill Cooper, Bill Cooper swiped a lot of material from a lot of other places. The Phoenix Liberator plagiarized Bill Cooper word for word a lot of the time. So, yeah. So, haha, <laughs> <laughs> plagiarism payback. So, who's really behind all this? This is a quote. This is not me talking. Please be very clear. This is not me talking. This is Hatan. We are given to know, quote, we are given to know how the great deceiver Satan has pulled off the greatest deception ever on this planet. He used the Jews as his main characters with Zionism as their cover. Many of his henchmen even changed their names so they could hide their Jew heritage so they could better play the games of deception. Hatan keeps us updated on all important events, whether our controlled press realizes it or not. And suddenly you have crossed into a very dark corner that George Van Tassel's head would explode at if he saw this. You're reading about aliens, and you've got your greys. Hey, greys, cool, I like greys. This is like creepy channeling. And then you turn the page. I'm not kidding. You literally turn the page. And here is a point-by-point -point explanation of why the Holocaust never happened. Because Hatan has told us. 
<laughs> so, complete recycling. We take the bits, we take the names, we take some characters, we take a means of communication, we bolt it onto whatever thing we think needs to be promoted. And here's a scary lesson. You can't control with what people do with your stuff. You can't control what people do with your ideas. I've created the character of an all-powerful, loving lord who is all-knowing and all-wise and is going to tell us how to live. Yeah, well, I heard he said the Holocaust never happened. You can't denounce that without putting your own contact claims at risk of being denounced as well. You back yourself into a corner. When you present things with absolutely no proof, anybody can. Anybody can. And they will. They will. But it's not all bad. This is bad. This is bad. But it's not all bad. Because the idea of using UFO ideas to promote social and political ideals is not, is not over. How many of you have heard of exopolitics? <laughs> it reframes ufology as a new branch of political science. We are dealing with the geopolitic, the galactic geopolitics. How do we know this? Whistleblowers. But um, one of the, the people who is one of the pioneers of this, and, and somebody who's had a very interesting career and, and continues to, and I'm going to focus in, in the last couple minutes here on the earliest part of his efforts, is Dr. Stephen Greer, who back in the 19, early 1990s established... Um, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or C-SETI, which really needs under it, not affiliated with the real SETI. But recycling, that's a cool acronym. Everybody's heard of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or what else is it? Thank you. Um, that's for you, Stan. But um, can I add a letter to it? So we recycle the, we recycle the acronyms. We give them something else. But when this started, Greer was very explicitly focused not on ending the alien truth embargo for the sake of knowing the truth, but because he was convinced that the technology, the extraterrestrial technology the American government had could make a concrete difference in the lives of the world's people. There's extensive writings about specifically how new energy generation devices could alleviate poverty. Provide, you know, promote economic equality, improve medicine. Greer himself is a medical doctor, and so he focuses on like the medical aspects of what could be improved or changed. It continues. We've got stories, and we can use them to promote our agenda. So, so, in conclusion-ish, because there aren't any conclusions, as Ryan said. I love that, by the way. That was absolutely true. Does this get us any closer to the truth? And in my notes, I have the truth in all caps, of course. No, it doesn't. But nurturing a ufological culture that has an understanding of its own past could help create an environment in which new and emerging researchers are freed from the endless cycle of infinitely retold tales of dubious nature, and in which they have the tools to recognize the various social, political, and cultural contextualizations in which some UFO claims have arisen. Understanding the stories that exist and how they've changed over time can help us strip away debris, 
and get closer to what might really matter, not the conspiratorial constructs, but the experiences and how those experiences emerge. This is what Greg was talking about a little bit. How looking at individual reactions to strange things, not looking for the magic piece of top secret paper that tells us the government knows what the strange things are and is keeping it from us, but exposing and understanding the recursive stories that have arisen will allow us to get back to the basics a little bit more and look, look at the people experiencing things and looking at their responses. And that might get people closer to understanding the phenomenon on its own terms, released from the flotsam and jetsam of the last seven decades. Thank you. Well, there it is. Um, I didn't speed anything up. I really do talk that fast and breathlessly live if I'm not careful or if I have too much to fit into the time allotted. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed that and I hope you found it relevant to some of the things going on um, that are ongoing in the UFO field. Next time, I promise, um, I shouldn't promise, next time, Howard Menger, Connie Menger, and the music of the stars. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you very much to those who've thrown some currency our way. It's very much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. You can also subscribe to The Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts. The Saucer Life Encounter 57 was a production of Chizo Media. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Esotericon was produced by Paul Kimball. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>